0: All right, well, uh, Pastor DC, in his announcements, he reminded us that uh, we've been recently celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, Last week was Halloween for most of the world, but if you are a Protestant Christian, it was not only Halloween on the 31st, it was also Reformation Day. And Reformation Day is celebrated in the church because it marks the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis, his 95 Thesis, on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And so that happened on October 31st. That happened uh, 500 years ago. And we mark that and we celebrate that as the just beginning point, the impetus to the Protestant Reformation, where we recovered uh, these great doctrines of uh, sitting under the, living under the authority of Scripture alone, being saved by grace alone, through Christ alone and faith alone, right? Uh, that, that our purpose and our whole aim and existence is for the glory of God alone. And so those five solas of the scripture, uh, Solas of the Reformation that we celebrate and we so much cherish, that started 500 years ago with Martin Luther, and we are so grateful for that. And so uh, a lot of people say Halloween, we say "Reformation Day. If you say both, that's cool too. Um, so to honor this, we're taking a pause. From our 1 Timothy series, we've been preaching through First Timothy, but we're taking a two-week pause. And last week, Pastor DC spoke on the life and ministry of Martin Luther. And one of Martin Luther's chief contributions to the Reformation was just recovering uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay, the Catholic Church said it's faith and works. Okay, faith and works, but uh, the Gospel tells us no. It's faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so uh, that's what uh, Pastor DC preached on. If you missed it, I want to commend it to you through our website or our podcast. They're fantastic audio quality, and we'd love for you to click on those. Uh, Today, in uh, part two of this series, I'll be preaching on John Calvin And his great influence on the Reformation. So, if this is your first time here, uh, this is a very atypical message. Normally, we just open up with the Bible, read it, and I unpack the text for us. But today, it's going to feel like a biography, and it's going to feel like um, you're just learning a lot about like a historical figure, uh, some of his main passions and influences, and then I'm going to try and tie it into how that. You know, affects us today, how that encourages us, inspires us, and challenges us. So, uh, but if, you come, if you've come here today and you're like, man, I'm not coming back, they don't preach the Bible, next week we're going to get right back into the First Timothy series, I guarantee you. And so please don't feel like it's awkward. Um, I actually really am excited to share with you about the life and ministry of John Calvin. So it's long been said that um, Luther was the first great reformer. He got it started. He was the catalyst to the Reformation. He was the first great reformer, but Calvin was the Reformation's greatest theologian. Calvin was the Reformation's greatest theologian, the greatest thinker. Now, I'm sure Luther would take offense to that, uh, but that's how the historians remember it. Um, No one published more than Luther during the Reformation. He was a beast as far as publishing. But Calvin published the greatest work to come out of the Reformation, when he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. While Luther was the fiery preacher, right, the strong leader, unafraid, right, unafraid and so bold as he nailed his 95 Thesis on the Church of the Door in Wittenberg, right, as he stood before the Roman Catholic Tribunal at the risk of physical persecution and even death, Luther stood before the tribunal and said, here I stand, I can do no other. Luther was a lion, right? Luther was a lion. But John Calvin was quite the opposite. He was a quiet scholar. Calvin was reluctant to lead. He was the type of guy that everyone had to kind of push into leadership. He was the type of guy where everyone saw the gifts in him, but he didn't see them in himself, right? Right? Everyone was calling on him to lead, but he was like super reluctant. He was quiet. He was shy. He preferred books over banter. So Calvin and Luther were, were polar opposites when it comes to personality, and yet God used them mightily. God used them mightily in the Reformation to help the church come out of darkness into light. The title of today's message is From Doctrine to Doxology. Now, if you don't know what doxology means, it simply means uh, to give God glory, okay? Doxa in the Greek means glory, and so doxology is simply the practice of glorifying God or the discipline of giving God glory. And the, um, and the main idea of today's message is simply this, that from Calvin, we learn that the study of God should always lead us to the glory of God, okay? The study of God, as we spend time in the scriptures, The aim is not just to be able to answer a couple Bible study questions. The aim is not just to tickle our ears and fill our minds. The aim of preaching, of studying, of devotions, of learning, it is to lead us to glorify God. Doctrine is to lead to doxology. And the reverse is true as well. That as you and I want to glorify God, live lives that are worthy of the gospel, live lives that are for God's glory, then that should lead us to the study of God, to the study of doctrine, to the word of God. Okay. So in other words, your study should lead to glory and vice versa. Now, I know that for many of us, when we start talking about like the glory of God, you think of a couple praise songs, but it just gets really generic like really vague, what does it mean to glorify God? Okay. Um, one simple way for us to glorify God very practically is just by delighting in him, by enjoying him. John Piper famously has written and preached this great quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay, just think about that. God is most glorified in you He's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not satisfied in this world, not satisfied, satisfied in our accomplishments, not satisfied in our comforts, but satisfied in God and who he is and what he has done. That's when God is made most of. That's when God is most glorified. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a natural relationship. I'm actually not trying to force something when I talk about doctrine and delight, Okay? There's a natural relationship between the two. The more we learn about something, the more we are able to enjoy it. And the more you enjoy something, the more you desire to learn it, okay? That's just a fact, that's the truth. The more you learn about something, the more you're able to enjoy it, the more you enjoy something, the more you want to learn about it. Uh, Food is a great example of this. Now, I've always, I know it doesn't look this way, but I have always enjoyed steak. Like steak is one of my favorite foods. But up until college, I only ate, like, my mother's steak. And my mother cooked my steak well done, like, all the way through. And so I drenched it with A1 and hot sauce, and I was like, this is steak. It's the only steak I knew, right? And I know all the foodies just just judged me, and all the foodies, you just judge my mother, but I forgive you, okay? Um, But it wasn't my fault that all I knew was, like, well-done steak. Okay. My overprotective mother, she didn't want me eating any undercooked food. Right? My overprotective mother didn't want me eating any food with blood in it. Actually, like, kind of like older Korean ladies are really against that. Like, my grandmother was like, no, well done. My mom was like, well done. And I'm like, oh. Right? Anyways, um, but that's all I knew. But finally in college, my eyes were opened, and I encountered the glory of a medium rare steak. <laughs> and when I was first eating, I felt rebellious. Like even like a little naughty. I was like, oh, I don't know if I should be eating this. (laughs) What would mother think, right? What would mother think? I'm like eating all this like, yeah, medium rare. But it was glorious and it was life changing. And over the years, that delight, okay, as I've gotten older and like learning how to cook and buying barbecue grills and all of this stuff, that delight in that delicious medium rare steak has led me to want to learn more about steak. And so over the years, I've been learning about the different qualities of meat. It's not just choice. There's prime. And even amongst prime, there's all these different grading, like A1 and all of this stuff. And it's like, it's unbelievable. And it's not just the quality of the meat. It's the types of cuts, right? There's the ribeye. There's the T-bone. There's the filet. There's the chuck. There's the New York strip. There's all of these types of meats with different mouthfeels and flavor profiles. And I'm learning about steak, okay? And then all the different ways to prepare it. Okay, I'm a traditional just like charcoal grill, barbecue grill guy, but there's the souvet, right? That's the new thing. There's the people who just um, cast iron and then finish it off in the oven. That's classic, perfect, okay? So what have I been doing? What has happened to me? All of this information, as I've been learning about the doctrines of steak, all right, that learning has elevated my capacity to enjoy it elevated my ability to delight in it all the more. I'm not just eating my mom's well-done steak with A1 anymore. We have leveled up because I've learned and I've grown in that technique. Now, I hope I haven't stumbled any of our vegan brothers or sisters. God bless you guys too. But um, that's the natural connection, okay, that our learning our minds, our hearts, okay, our doctrines and our doxology, everything is connected. And church, I know that there's some of you here that are very well versed in your doctrines. You might even call yourself a Calvinist. You're like, yeah, I love John Calvin. I like, you know, I follow the John Calvin Instagrams and and I'm part of a John Calvin Facebook group. I know all the the, the 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 meaning of tulip is an acronym. I can say it forwards and backwards. We all know the shuns of Christianity: election, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, right? And so you have those categories, you have those doctrines, but perhaps you lack the doxology. Perhaps you lack a desire and a passion for the glory of God. Maybe that is missing. Perhaps you're not captivated anymore by God's glory. Perhaps you're, you, don't, you don't even care that your life is failing to re- reflect God's glory in your workplace, in your study, in your relationships, in your families, in, in your entire life. There's not this conviction and passion to make much of God and give him glory. In fact, it's just a category. You can tell me what glory means. You're like, oh yeah, Pastor Mike, it's doxa. Don't you know it you know, from the Greek? but the glory of God is not burning in your heart. Conversely, there are others of us here today, you have all of the sincerity. You have all of the zeal. You have the Christian feels and the heart that beats for God and for others, but when it comes to knowing biblical doctrine, that is just not on your radar. Have you heard the phrase, oh, we just want to love God and love others and nothing else matters? When I hear that, it breaks my heart. It's like a half-truth. Love God and love others, yes, and then nothing else matters. I'm like, ah, oh. that is an oversimplification of the Christian life. I need to warn you that if your love for God and for others is not fueled by the word of God, if it is not girded and guarded by sound doctrine, then your faith it actually might be more sentimental than biblical. Your faith might be driven more than more by feelings and friendships, right? Than sound doctrine and the gospel. Okay? Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to be a people who possess both deep understanding, who possess doctrine. And a burning passion for God's glory, a people who understand and practically live out doxology, right? Not just as a category, but as a way of life to give God glory. We see this in the life and ministry of John Calvin. So, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna do a little bit of a biography. We're gonna learn about who he was, the things that he experienced, his passions, and, and how God used him as such a powerful figure for the Reformation and, and the things that we can benefit from him. And so I hope you guys will hang on, and, and if you're a biology or a biography, not biology, biography buff, uh, you will hopefully be blessed by this. Uh, who is John Calvin? Calvin was born in France, and he was raised up in the Catholic tradition. Okay. One thing we learn. About Calvin. If you ever just read uh, some short pamphlets or articles about John Calvin, you will learn very quickly that he was a man well acquainted with sorrows. His mother, when he died, uh, his mother died when he was five or six years old. Uh, He had four brothers, two sisters. Two of his brothers, when they were but children, they passed away as well, all experienced through his adolescence. And then his father, not wanting to raise John and the rest of the children by himself, he sent John away for boarding school. And he didn't send him to some ordinary boarding school. He sent him to a very rigorous Catholic school where he would be trained up to eventually become a priest. The schedule was intense. They started every morning at 4 a.m. with studies and with prayers and with exercises. And and it was rigorous and John. And that was his life. That was his life. But then later, his father became disillusioned with the church. So he pulls John out of this Catholic priest track school And he says, you know what? You go and study law, right? Go and study law. But then John, his father, his his father died. He passed away when he was 21. And after his father passed, John resumed his theological studies, right? Theological studies. Now just pause and and think about that, okay? I've just flown through the first 21 years of Calvin's life. But in those years, he's lost both his father and his mother, He's lost his two brothers, and he spent much, majority of his adolescence at a boarding school by himself, away from his home, away from his family, away from his friends, and in a very strict Catholic context. One scholar writes, it is no wonder why he preached often of the gospel bringing comfort to those who feel homeless, alienated, and dispossessed. That was Calvin's life. At 21, full of sorrow, full of loneliness, full of homelessness. All throughout Calvin's ministry, right? As as God had healed him, as God had comforted him, Calvin used his energy to minister to refugees and exiles, to the broken and to the poor, because there was compassion. There was empathy there. As so many in Europe were being exiled due to religious persecution, they found refuge in Geneva, and that's where Calvin was doing ministry in. He knew what it meant to be in exile. He knew what it meant to be lonely, and he wanted to offer comfort to those who experienced what he experienced. Now, if Calvin's childhood and adolescence was full of sorrow, so was his later life. Okay? Uh, he got married at the age of 34, and uh, he actually married a widow uh, who had two children of her own from a previous marriage. But, but he loved her and accepted and raised those children as his own. But he and his wife, they had one son together. And that son died in infancy. And then later, his wife, who he called the best companion of my life, she died after just nine years of marriage. Okay, So he got married at 34. At 43, he lost his wife. Physically, he suffered from gout, hemorrhoids, kidney stones, blood loss, and Calvin himself died at the age of 55. Okay. That's a tough life. Just, I, I, I hope, I don't believe there's a person here who's lost both their parents, their siblings, their spouse, and their own children. And yet that was Calvin after 43 years of life on this earth. So how did Calvin persevere? How did he not lose his mind? How did he not lose his faith? How did he not lose everything in reflecting on the death of his wife? Okay, this is from Calvin's own memoirs, his own letter, and this is what he writes. He says, you know well how tender or rather soft my mind is. Had not a powerful self-control been given to me, I would not have been born up so long. And truly, mine is no common source of grief. He's actually saying, yes, I know normal people don't experience what I experienced, right? It is uncommon to lose all that Calvin has lost, okay? That's what he's saying. I know mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordained, would have willingly shared not only my poverty, but even my death. What a beautiful statement to make about your wife. She is the best companion I could ever have, and I know that if the Lord had not taken her from me, she would have journeyed with me unto poverty and even unto death. Okay, that's how much he loved his wife. That's how much his wife loved him. So it wasn't like, oh, she died, but I didn't really care about her, right? That's just cold, right? He loved his wife. I love that quote because what Calvin is saying is that he wasn't able to endure because he was tough. He didn't endure because he just was determined. He said, you know what? The church needs me. The kingdom needs me. I can lose everyone, but I'm going to be focused on God. That wasn't what Calvin was saying. Calvin wasn't saying, you know what? I've got grit. Like grit is the new thing, right? For us just to be tough and resolute. That wasn't Calvin's secret. That's not how he persevered. Not from resolve and self-determination and grit. In fact, he says the opposite. What does he say about himself? He says, I confess, I have a tender and soft mind. Okay, if it's just me, I get discouraged easily. If it's just me, I'm I'm like, I'm like constantly haunted over these things. I'm always ruminating. I'm always struggling with these things. So he has a tender and a soft mind prone to melancholy. But God, in his grace, he granted him the gift of self-control. You see that in the beginning, he says, had not a powerful self-control been given to me. His self-control, his strength was not from him. It was foreign, it was alien. We often forget that self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, okay? Self-control is one of the great fruits of the Holy Spirit. And it was God who gave Calvin the strength to persevere. Otherwise, he wouldn't have lasted long. He knew that just as his was a case of exceptional grief. God was granting him an exceptional grace, okay? That's, that's something we can take away from Calvin. We can say, my, what a man of sorrows. What anguish and what pain, what exceptional pain Calvin experienced. And it is amazing to see what exceptional grace and redemption God offered his son. The second thing we see in Calvin's statement is a faith in the providence of God. Now, when the reformers talk about the providence of God, they're just talking about sovereignty. And we all know what sovereignty is. It's the idea that, that God is in control of everything, that he is free, he is absolute, he is almighty, right? There's nothing that happens separate from, apart from the will, right? And the knowledge of God. But I want to share another quote regarding uh, sovereignty from Calvin. And he's talking about sovereignty and suffering, okay? Because I think that's when sovereignty gets tough. It's not like, oh, we got a job. Oh, amen, God is sovereign, right? Or you get married or you get a girlfriend. You're like, oh, amen, God is sovereign, right? That, that, that's easy to say. It's hard to say God is sovereign when I've just lost my child. It's hard to celebrate the doctrine of sovereignty when we've lost ones we love. But this is what Calvin says regarding the sovereignty of God and the suffering of men. So numerous are the dangers which surround us that we could not stand a single moment if his eye, God, his eye, did not watch over our preservation. But the true security for a happy life lies in being persuaded that we are under divine government. The true security for a happy life lies in being persuaded that we are under divine government, that we are under God's sovereignty, that we are under God's providence. Now, that sounds foreign to us, doesn't it? Who talks like this? Who thinks like this? Okay. That the idea of true security, that true happiness is in the reality that God is sovereign. You know what we say? We say happy life, wait, happy wife, happy what? Life. That a happy wife is the key to a happy life, right? That if you want happiness, right, you want security, you want comfort, get a great job, right? Have healthy kids, guard your own health, exercise well, have great friends, go on great vacations, buy things you love, right? That this is our world's pattern, our formula for happiness. Calvin says, no. True happiness is found in being persuaded that God is in control. Why? Because do you know when happiness is the most important to you? Not when you're happy. It's when you're in the darkness, is it not? Happiness is most precious to you, most needed, most desired when you are in the darkness. When you are in pain, when you are in sorrow, when you are depressed, when you're at loss, that's when you're like, Lord, if I could just have a moment of happiness, of respite and peace. And it's in those moments where a paycheck won't do enough. A vacation can't cure you. Retail therapy cannot restore your soul. This is why we need God and his providence. Church, this was Calvin's great source of peace and happiness. Remembering that God is almighty and he's sovereign over all things and remembering the fact that he is not just a distant God, he is our father in heaven. And so when we talk about God doing all things for his glory, we always need to remember, and that is for our good. We say that, we pray it, we sing it all the time, that God does all things for his glory and for our good. That's what it means for him to watch over us. That's what it means for him to preserve us and to care for us and to provide for us. But Calvin knows that this is not easy, okay? He knows, he's like, so numerous are the dangers which surround us. We just wouldn't be able to survive on our own. And he knows that when we are struggling, sovereignty is just, ah, it just feels distant. It doesn't feel like it's helpful, okay? right? If you lose someone you love and someone's like oh god is god's in control of everything you're like yeah really thanks right or you've just lost something and someone just and and you're in pain or you lost your job or whatever it might be and if someone says oh but you know god loves you he's your father in heaven you're like thanks okay this is why calvin has this great line he says the security the secret is in being persuaded in being persuaded that we are under divine government. I love that, that we must constantly be won over. We must constantly be convicted to trust. It is not easy, right guys? It's not easy to just trust God. It's not easy to cling to God when you are in pain, when you are struggling. It is so, so difficult, and Calvin says we need help. We need to be persuaded that he is for us, right? That he's with us. And so Calvin goes to the word. Calvin was a man of the word like no other. And he loved 2 Corinthians chapter one. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse three to six, it's about the comfort that God offers. And I just wanna read this for us so that there's at least some scripture being read in this message. Paul writes this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. A couple key things that Paul is saying there. He's saying, there is comfort for your affliction. Whatever you're struggling with today in your life, God offers you comfort. There's comfort for your affliction. The second thing Paul is writing and God is telling us is that there's a purpose for your affliction. I know that's hard to understand. We're like, God, why? Why would you let this happen to me? Why would you let this happen to my family? Why would you let this happen to our church or our nation or our world? The scriptures here promise that there is a purpose for your affliction, not only a comfort, there is a purpose. Think about the way that Paul or sorry, think about the way that Calvin can offer comfort to his congregation members. A man who has lost his spouse, he can comfort the widows and widowers. As a man who has lost his own children, he can comfort the parents who have lost children to infant death and childhood death as well. As a man who's lost his own parents and his own siblings, he has compassion and empathy for any of his church members who have lost loved ones. And God is able to use Calvin as a great comforter to his congregation because he was first afflicted and healed by the power of the gospel. There's a purpose for your affliction, okay? Now, and it's in these moments where like God's comfort feels elusive if you're struggling, okay? Once again, I gotta ask, when you are in loss, when you are in pain, when you are struggling, what do you do, okay? The world will say, take a vacation. You've had a hard month. You've had personal tragedy. You need to take time off. Okay, that's cool, right? I've already mentioned retail therapy. My boyfriend just broke up with me. I'm so upset. I'm going to cut my hair. And I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon, right? Retail therapy to provide for me comfort, okay? Okay. Guys do that at the midlife crisis. That's what guys end up with like random timeshares and motorcycles and unnecessary things because they're in this place of darkness and anxiety and they want to comfort themselves. So they buy unnecessary, idiotic things. Okay? No wonder when we are doing all of these things for our own comfort, no wonder the comfort of God feels so distant to us. How many of you go to God in his word for comfort? How many of you go to God in his word to be reminded again that he is your savior, that he is your father, that he is good, that he's sovereign. There's nothing is impossible for him. You see, Calvin endured, not because he went on vacations and bought a bunch of stuff he didn't need. Calvin endured because he was a man of the book. And God persuaded him over and over again that he was sovereign and he was good. And God was trustworthy. Do you know why we're not persuaded? Because we spend no time studying God's word. We spend no time being sensitive and open to the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to lead us to comfort us, rather we fill ourselves with the things of this world, we fill our bellies with, with food, right? Just comfort food, it's called comfort food, right? And then we wonder, God, but why does, why do you feel so far? Why do you feel so distant? Right? I really appreciate this about Calvin's ministry. There's so many other things to share about Calvin's life, but the last thing I wanna share is how he became involved in the Reformation. Calvin's conversion to the Reformation, it's a bit difficult for scholars to pinpoint. It wasn't dramatic like Luther. Luther was reading Galatians and boom, he just realized we're, say, we're justified by faith alone, not by works. It was a lightning bolt for Luther. Right? For Calvin, it wasn't. Rather, his transformation occurred more gradually and his eyes were open to the majesty of God through the word of God. Okay. As he spent time listening, not just to his priest and not just to the authority of the Catholic church. And, and the same goes for you guys. He says, well, don't just let your supply of, 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 of hearing God in his word be from the preacher. You need to go to God's word yourself. And as Calvin was going to God in, his, in the word, his eyes were being opened to realize, yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's not these indulgences. Right, it's not these forms and traditions of the Catholic Church. It really is the cross and the gospel alone. While Calvin was in his twenties, persecution broke out in France against those who aligned with Luther and the Reformation. Europe was completely divided, right, between the Protestants and the Catholics. So persecution broke out in France, and so all of the more Protestant believers and leaders they had to flee. So Calvin and his friends, they set out for Strasbourg, which was a city north of France, uh, in the north part of France, and uh, it was a safe zone, actually. Strasbourg was favorable towards the Reformation. Basically, if you had a governor or a king or a prince who ruled that town or that state, and they were like pro-Protestant, then that's a safe place for you, okay? That's how it was divided in Europe. So he's setting out for Strasbourg, but a local war broke out in France, And it forced Calvin to take a detour. And instead of going straight to Strasbourg, he went to Geneva. He went to Geneva, Switzerland, and there he met met a man uh, named uh, Farrell. And the first service, I was like, Farrell? But I was like, no, that's a hip-hop star. Uh, Farrell, who was leading the Reformation in Geneva. And Farrell asked Calvin to stay and teach and further the cause of the Reformation in Geneva. He saw how brilliant Calvin was. He saw the leadership and the potential of Calvin. He said, stay, stay here in Geneva, right? Further the cause of the Reformation. But you know what Calvin did? He declined. Calvin desired a quiet life of study and writing. I said, I don't want to be a pastor. I just want to be a theologian. I don't want to be a leader. I just want to be a writer. I want a quiet life. You know what Farrell did? He famously looked at Calvin And he threatened him. And he said, if you dare leave the city, and if you abandon the work of the Reformation, God will curse you. God will curse you. Terrified and convicted. You know what Calvin did? He stayed. He stayed. He remained in Geneva to teach and pastor for the majority of his days. Calvin recollects, and this is a quote, he says, I have learned from experience that we cannot see very far before us. When I promised myself an easy, tranquil life, what I least expected was at hand. I love that, All right? All right. We, can, we can chart out our own lives. We can plan our own paths. But God is the one who knows our steps. He's the one who leads and it is this part of Calvin's testimony that impresses me perhaps the most. I mean, it's pretty radical for him to endure so much pain and sorrow and anguish. But, but I find this to be so helpful and practical to us. You see, Calvin is a man who doesn't just talk about submitting to the will of God. He's a man who doesn't just talk about obeying God, right? We all say that. We say that in our small groups. We say that at a church. We sing it. We pray it. We say, Lord, I want to I submit to you. Your will be done in my life. Your will be done in my family. But you know what Calvin does? He lives it. He lives it. Did you know that Geneva actually exiled Calvin just like a couple years after his leadership? So they're like, Calvin, please stay. Pharaoh's like, you better stay or else I'm gonna, God's going to curse you. And he's like, fine, fine, I'll stay. And he commits to the city and he pastors the city and he preaches and he serves and he leads. And then Geneva gets sick of him, right? The leaders get sick of him. And so they say, you know what? You're exiled. And exile isn't just like, oh, you're leave. It's like you're cut off, right? They exiled Calvin. And so Calvin was like, I'm done. I never want to return again. Calvin was done with Geneva, right? I think there's a, like a random quote I remember hearing Calvin saying, I'd rather die a thousand deaths than return to Geneva, right? But the city and the church fell to ruin in just three years, right? Three years later, they're like, they were just devastated. So they begged him to come back. They begged him to come back. What do you think Calvin did? Church, I just want to say, if you fire me, I'm done, Right? Like, I, I'm done. Like, if you fire me, I'm like, like unfriend all of you guys on Facebook, like, whatever, right? And then if you come back and like say, hey, Pastor Mike, please, please, you know, like, we'll give you a little raise or whatever, i be like, no, I'm done, right? There's no way. I'd be so hurt, okay? Calvin didn't want to return, right? He said, there's no place in the world that I fear more than Geneva, okay? He did not want to return, but, this is what he says. This is When they ask him, why did you go back? Why did you return to a city and a church that exiled you? This is what he says. He says, when I remember that in this matter, I am not my own master. I present my heart as a sacrifice and I offer it up to the Lord. Calvin took Romans 14, 7, 8 seriously. Okay, he, And this is what Paul writes in Romans 14. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What did Calvin do? He went to Geneva a second time. He committed again to a church that had betrayed him and hurt him, and exiled him. He went back against his own will, but he was surrendered to the will of God. Why? Because I am not my own, says Calvin. I belong to God. My will is not my own. God's will has to become my will. My purpose is not my own. God's purpose must be my purpose. God's glory must be my purpose. And he served in Geneva there to the end of his life, and he preached anywhere from 170 to 250 sermons a year. I don't even want to hear that, guys. Like for me, there's 52 weeks in a year, right? I don't even preach every week here. Calvin's got me beat by like five times, like times five, right? It's nuts. And he led Geneva to become what John Knox, a British reformer, John Knox visited Geneva. And he called Geneva this. He said, it is the most perfect school of Christ since the day of the apostles, right? That's probably hyperbole, but nonetheless, that's how impressed John Knox was. That as he's trying to establish the Protestant church in England, as he's trying to lead a reformation in England, he visits Geneva and he's like, this is the most perfect school of Christ since like the Acts days, the early church, right? But I love the fact that Calvin didn't wanna go. I love the fact that Calvin didn't want to lead. I love the fact that he's like, oh, I, I would rather like just chew glass than go back to Geneva. And yet when God was calling, he went, not my will, but yours. Okay. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life? You see, if God has never redirected your steps, if God has never redirected your decisions to do something you are naturally not inclined to do. If God has never, never called you to do something you don't wanna do and then you actually did it and you obeyed, you've never submitted to him. The church is full of people who've never submitted to God. The church is full of people who have only followed God insofar as he has agreed with you. Think about that. So many of us follow God as long as it accommodates our will and our desires. Very few of us, very few of us have experienced radical obedience and submission to the point where we say no, and then God says yes, and we actually follow. Most of the time, we, we don't. Okay, have you experienced real obedience in your life? Have you allowed God to be your authority? God. To be your ruler, God to be your Jesus to be your King, okay. And that's my prayer for us. My prayer for us is to to, to imitate Calvin in this manner. Because what Calvin is doing is imitating Jesus. Jesus, even at Gethsemane, he says, not my will. Lord, would you take, God, Father, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to die on the cross. If there's another way, let's work it out. But as he's there for hours, praying intensely to the point where his sweat is like drops of blood, he surrenders to the will of the Father. And he says, not my will, but yours. Calvin said the same thing. Not my will, but yours. Church, can you can you say that to God? What is it in your life right now that God is calling you to do that you don't want to do? There's something for everyone. Whether it's forgiveness, whether it's repentance, right, whether it's confession, whether it, whatever it might be. What is it that God is calling you to do that you don't want to do? And I want to invite you to obey and see what happens. See what kind of freedom What kind of joy, what kind of life God offers you if you would obey him and trust him, that he's in control, that he's good, and he's trustworthy? Would you consider that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life and ministry of John Calvin and Martin Luther, their courage, their courage to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. And Father, we thank you because in Calvin's life and in his testimony, we see your promise to sustain and preserve your sheep come to fulfillment. Calvin confessed that if it was up to him, he would have been crushed. But because he was in your hands, Because you were empowering him with your strength and sustaining him with your spirits, he persevered to the end. We thank you for that. We just thank you for that reality and that encouragement. I want to pray for anyone who here is suffering and struggling right now. And Lord, would you grant them the same grace to sustain them, to to lift them up, even, even when they can't lift themselves up. Lord, would you persuade them right now Again, trust in you. For so many, our hearts are callous and we struggle with faith. Would you, right now, by your Holy Spirit and by the truth of your word, persuade us to believe in you again? And Father, for the rest of us, help us to obey. Help us and give us the courage to obey. Even if it is at great cost to us, may we see the treasure with your will and obedient to you and abiding